Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And longtime listeners know that sad royal childhoods are a frequent theme of ours. But the truth is, discussing the youth of a podcast subject is usually pretty interesting, whether they're royalty or not, whether it's Evlia Chalabi showing off to the Sultan, or uh, as we discussed recently, paleontologist Mary Anning getting struck by lightning as an infant, or even Hans Christian Andersen crashing dinner parties in his ill-fitting communion suit, I really think that taking a closer look at the early years often shows a different side of a subject or sometimes even most intriguingly a sign of what's to come, you know, some spark of genius in the early years. But it's rare that we devote an entire episode to those early pre-fame years as we're going to do today with the talented Bronte family. And while we we will follow up with an episode on their remarkable breakthroughs and their successes, which we all probably know a little bit more about, there are a few good reasons for establishing a solid footing before we go there. I mean, the first one would be that most of the family didn't live much beyond childhood. That's kind of the sad reason why. Yes, the youngest Bronte child to die was only at 10, and the oldest was 38, so... Not very long lives at all. Secondly, the Bronte children grew up under very strange circumstances. They grew up in extreme isolation coupled with endless intellectual stimulation. Yeah, there's a New Yorker article by Mary Hawthorne on their fantastic drawings and watercolors, something you might not be aware of, that the Brontes were actually, in some cases, really talented artists, too. But this article suggested that the peculiarities of their upbringing produced, quote, an extraordinary collection collective creative mania, which I think is a great way to think about what they were doing as kids. And there's one third reason that we want to go into their childhood a little bit first, and that's the Bronte mystique. It almost hinges on those earlier years. So how did one remote family produce three world-class writers and one brilliant wastrel brother? How did the isolated and experienced Bronte girls author books filled with so much passion and terror? And what was in the water at Haworth besides death and disease? Yeah, what made them all so brilliant? So the Brontes are such a staple of British literature classes that it probably surprises some people to learn their origins origins were in Northern Ireland and that their family name wasn't even Bronte. Their father, who's Patrick, was born in 1777 on St. Patrick's Day in Northern Ireland. And he was the son of Hugh Brunty, who is a ditchmender. And despite the poor beginnings, Patrick was the eldest of 10 really, you know, in a really poor family. Uh, They were very story-oriented. Hugh Brunty was known in his area as being an incredible storyteller. Young Patrick grew up reading as much as he possibly could. He even memorized Paradise Lost as a kid. And that intellectual spark caught the attention of a local Presbyterian minister. And from there, Patrick made one good connection after another with wealthy members of the Methodist movement and ultimately earned himself a spot at Cambridge. And I read a really great biography on Charlotte Bronte by Rebecca Frazier, and she said that this jump from being the ditchmender's son to attending Cambridge was really an almost unimaginable leap. Again, it did remind me a little bit of Hans Christian Andersen, actually, who we just talked about. 
1806, Patrick, who had changed his name to Bronte at school, decided to take orders as a clergyman. In 1812, he met Mariah Branwell, who was from a well-off Cornish merchant family with rumors of pirate ancestry. She lived in Penzance, after all. And Mariah was in a pretty great place for an unmarried 30-year-old in the 19th century. She had some money, she had some independence, and she was much loved and valued by her family. But only months after meeting Patrick, Mariah packed it in, married him, and moved north and started having just baby after baby. They had six kids in six years, Mariah, Elizabeth, Charlotte, Patrick Branwell, Emily, and Anne. So most of the younger Bronte children were born in Thornton, West Yorkshire, where the Brontes could socialize. It was near enough to a town that they could go visit with friends. They had a they had a busy life there. And that was especially important considering Mr. and Mrs. Bronte were already pretty isolated from their extended families in Ireland and Cornwall. But of course, Bronte buffs know that the kids didn't grow up in this busy, sociable town of Thornton. Heathcliff roams moors after all, not some cute little village. So not long after Anne's birth in 1820, Mr. Bronte accepted a position as the uh, curate of Haworth. And it wasn't really too far off from Thornton, but the hills and the moors surrounding it made the place inaccessible, plus cold and windy and boggy. And today we know that Haworth was also very, very unhealthy. Uh, And I can actually remember this from my 11th grade literature class. My teacher drawing a picture of the Bronte house and um, the water supply and where it came from. And it, it just wow, that is very mind. involved. <laughs> Definitely. But it's something that unhealthiness of the town was something that Mr. Bronte noticed right away and tried to fix in his role as parson. I mean, just to give you a few examples of, of how unhealthy this place really was, because you might be thinking, you know, a small village, how bad could it be? But the Babbage report on sanitation from a about 30 years after the Brontes arrival compared Howard's death rate to that of Whitechapel, London, of course, one of the um, worst, most packed with people slums in London. The average life expectancy was only 25 years. The problems that this place had were that there weren't enough privies, no sewers, water was rarely clean, and there were too many dead filling up the poorly drained churchyard. And guess where the family lived? Right by the churchyard with a view of the cemetery on two sides. Since the local families were mostly quite poor, they were laborers and factory workers, there were only a few other quote, you know, respectable people that the Brontes could socialize with. So they stuck to themselves mainly. There was a class thing here. The Brontes were poor also, but they were middle class because of Mr. Bronte's position. The girls grew up learning to do things like put up linen, but they had servants to do the cleaning and the cooking. Yeah, I read one description of them learning light housekeeping, whatever that means. <laughs> I guess it means... I just imagine people walking around with a feather duster yeah, when dusting. I hear that. I don't know, like making lace or something. But still, you know, you're probably wondering at this point, why would you take this position if this town was so unhealthy? But the job meant a major raise for Mr. Bronte, plus a house for his family of eight and a job for life, which is a pretty serious thing. But the tragedy started not too long after they moved. Only nine months later, Mrs. Bronte, who hadn't really ever recovered after Anne's birth, started to get very sick. And Mr. Bronte nursed her himself for seven months. 
months while she slowly died of what at the time people thought was stomach cancer, but now what historians believe was blood poisoning. Um, Mariah, the oldest daughter, you know, still just a little kid, took care of her younger sisters and her brother until all six of them also got sick. They came down with scarlet fever. And at that point, Mr. Bronte was just at his breaking point and wrote to his sister-in-law, Elizabeth Branwell, to come up to Yorkshire and please help the family. So she attended her sister's death and stayed to care for the kids, but she really wanted to go home to warmer Cornwall. Mr. Bronte, meanwhile, tried to find a new wife to help educate his kids and also to steady his temper and allow his sister-in-law to go home, but he found no takers. I mean, he just wasn't in that attractive a position at the time. He had six kids and a really low salary, so it just didn't help his cause. Yeah, no takers. So... With six kids, though, and five of them girls, how was he supposed to educate them on a poor parson's income? And the kids were, of course, precocious. They're little Brontes. They'd read newspapers and talk politics. They'd argue about who they thought was best, the Duke of Wellington or Napoleon or Hannibal or Caesar. But they didn't have a formal education, which was especially important for girls who might need to actually go work later in life, you know, become teachers, become governesses. So it seemed like kind of a hopeless situation, but then a miracle seemed to happen. In 1824, a new school for the Daughters of the Poor Evangelical Clergy opened at Cowan Bridge, only about 50 miles from Haworth. For only 14 pounds a year, a girl could study history, geography, globes, grammar, writing, arithmetic, needlework, and fine housekeeping. And you could even choose a vocation of sorts. You could choose to learn to be a wife, a governess, or your own housekeeper. And for added cachet, the school's director was a wealthy clergyman named Carus Wilson, which was a really big name to someone like Mr. Bronte. Okay, though, if you've read Jane Eyre, you know where this story is going. The school was cold. It was damp. The building was overcrowded. Too many girls in two cramped rooms with too few privies and poor food. And another problem was that Wilson thought deprivation was a really good thing. He believed little children were particularly sinful. So he probably wasn't the best person to be running a school full of little children in an unhealthy spot. But by November 1824, the four eldest Bronte girls were at Cowan Bridge. And Mariah went home first in February 1825. She was dead by May of tuberculosis. Elizabeth went home May 31st prompting Mr. Bronte to leave the very next day and rescue Charlotte and Emily. So, I mean, that gives you a pretty good picture of what kind of state Elizabeth must have been in for him to go rushing back. She died just two weeks later. And according to an article on Elizabeth Bronte um, by Jean Trippett, she's actually called the um, unknown Bronte because so little is really known about her. Mariah also died young, but she was sort of the inspiration for Helen Burns and, you know, really idolized by her family. But Elizabeth's more of a blank slate. So anyway, this article by Jean Trippett in the journal Bronte Studies, Elizabeth supposedly also met with some unknown, quote, alarming accident while she was at school, her head being, quote, severely cut, according to the school's headmistress. So it seems like there were, you know, potentially more serious things going on. Not that the accident was necessarily something um, somebody had caused her harm, but just that it wasn't 
covered in any more detail than that. Yeah, it sounds sketchy. You know, it makes you feel like maybe Cowan Bridge was Lowood from Jane Eyre. Caris Wilson could have been the evil Mr. Brocklehurst. And, I mean, we'll talk more about Charlotte's legacy in the next episode, but since she was the only sister to become really famous during her lifetime, a lot of people took an interest in that connection. Charlotte herself said that Lowood was true. The Wilson camp claimed that Charlotte couldn't be relied on for having been a child at the time. So she wouldn't have remembered things as they really were. Exactly. According to Fraser, their biggest piece of evidence came from a letter signed A.H., which was believed to be the former headmistress and inspiration for the kind Miss Temple in Charlotte's book. She claimed everything had been rosy. In 1975, though, someone finally bothered to do the math and realized that the real Miss Temple had actually been dead when she wrote the vindicating letter. And the letter's author was probably actually the inspiration for the evil Mrs. Scatcherd. Which doesn't sound so good for Cowan Bridge all of a sudden. But with the death of Mariah and Elizabeth in such a short span of time, and of course also so soon after the death of their mother, uh, the kids were really devastated. And remember, their house looks out on a cemetery, too, so there was really no escaping this feeling of death. A later guest remembered that Howard's high mortality rate was really obvious to anybody who was stopping through because the church bell would constantly toll for the dead, and then the tombstone chiseler would always be at work, you know, chipping away at the granite blocks, which sounds really horrifying in this context of a family who's just lost so many people in such a short span of time. So Miss Branwell became the household educator for the girls, while Mr. Bronte would have given extra Greek and Latin lessons to Branwell. They also had an inexhaustible supply of reading materials, day-old newspapers, magazines, borrowed books, Methodist tracts, and literature, of course. Charlotte and Branwell read almost all of Byron at age 13 and 12. The only thing that Patrick Bronte seemed to censor was Miss Branwell's ladies' magazine. Because he thought it had silly little stories in it. He didn't want his kids to read that. So it's probably no surprise that with the kids reading so much romantic literature and then geography too and current events that they made up their own world eventually, you know, as a way to kind of get away from all that was going on in their real life and filled it with Byronic heroes and their most famous creation, the Empire of Angria with its capital of Glasstown, started when Mr. Bronte brought home a set of wooden soldiers for Branwell and Charlotte later described it in a way that sounds so genuine. You know, you can imagine kids just picking up toys and starting this imaginary world, but she wrote, Branwell came to our door with a box of soldiers. Emily and I jumped out of bed and I snapped one up and exclaimed, This is the Duke of Wellington. This shall be the Duke. Emily's became Gravy and Anne's Waiting Boy and Branwell's Bonaparte. So with all their soldiers named, I think the names went through a few variations in some cases, <laughs> uh, the soldiers became what they called the young men, and um, they lived in Glastown. The kids became these all-powerful genies. And then the Glastown saga morphed into something that wasn't just like playing with the soldiers on rainy days and making up stories. It really became a world for them. Yeah, Branwell even created a language and history and maps for this world. By January 1829, 
1929, they started to produce miniature glass town magazines with science articles, poems, and jokes. Actually, all the glass town writings were done on a miniature scale. So the first magazine was two and a quarter inch by one and a quarter inch done on scraps of sugar paper or wallpaper. In Angria and the Angrians, Branwell crammed 2,500 words onto a five by seven inch page, and they called it Scribble Mania. Which I think is my new band name. And I, <laughs> you know, they had a reason though behind all of this tiny writing, which they also did to sort of imitate print almost. It was a way to keep the adults out of their business, you know, because it was so impossible to read. Probably, especially if you were a 19th century person with bad eyesight. So Emily and Anne participated in the world of Angria, but they also created their own world called Gondol. And we don't know quite as much about Gondol as we do about Glasstown because Charlotte destroyed much of her sister's early writings after their deaths. But there is one pretty intriguing fact, especially if you've read any of those younger Bronte's works. Gondol was ruled by women, uh, which certainly set it apart from from the world of Angria, which had these really strong male protagonists. But all the kids continued writing poems and plays and romances about their worlds and these characters well into adulthood. And Charlotte would at various times try to ditch her imaginary world as she'd get older, but she'd come back. You know, sometimes Deglina and I were discussing before the podcast, actually, that while so charming in their youth, it does start to take on a disturbing tone when they are still so obsessed with it as they get older. But her indirect interest in it ultimately ended up coming out partly in some of her more famous work. Charlotte's alter ego, Zamorna, is very much like her later antihero, Mr. Rochester. So, I mean, there you go. But, of course, they couldn't play at home forever. In 1830, Mr. Bronte got sick and nearly died. When he recovered, he realized his kids had no safety net. So he decided to keep Branwell at home, but he sent Charlotte to school again to learn to be a governess, this time at Mrs. Wooler's school at Rowhead, 20 miles from Haworth. It was different from Cowan Bridge, and it wasn't a charity school. Other students there were rich manufacturing daughters. And Charlotte stood out with her Irish accent and her funny clothes. To make things worse, she was placed at the bottom of the class since her entire education had been so haphazard. And she couldn't play because she was so nearsighted. So she was really left she out of the She would read and thing. write instead of, you know, joining in with ball games. Eventually, though, according to the BBC documentary In Search of the Brontes, she made friends through through storytelling, which was really her strength, as we know. She would rehash the ghost tales that she learned from the Bronte's much-loved cook, Tabby. And two of her rowhead friends, Ellen Nissie and Mary Taylor, became lifelong correspondents of her. So she did manage to make those bonds. Yeah, and as a side note, too, the correspondence with Ellen really is the source of a lot of biographical information about not just Charlotte, but the Bronte family as a whole. Mary Taylor burned her correspondence, so we don't know what all we're missing there. So Charlotte also worked her way to the top of the class, and after two years, she came home. This is maybe one of the happier times in the Brontes' lives. All the kids were back at the parsonage. Charlotte's friend Ellen, who visited in 1833, wrote that, quote, they were beginning to feel conscious of their powers. They were rich in each other's companionship. Their health was good. Their spirits were good. There was often joyousness and mirth. The perfection of unrestrained talk and intelligence brightened the close of the days, which were passing all too swiftly. 
So we can kind of get a picture, too, of the Brontes during this period. They would take long walks over the moors, and in the evening, the four girls, or if Ellen was visiting, would stroll around the sitting room arm in arm. There were a lot of pets in the house. Later on, they had geese named Victoria and Adelaide, which I just love. Um, Branwell also still seemed like the great hope of the family, and that's something that's always interesting when you learn about the Brontes, these three very famous sisters Yet the family expected the son to be the great one. But at this point, you know, it seemed likely. He was charming. He was smart. He was good at everything he did. He had a well-respected art teacher at this point. And while his most famous work of his sister's is unfortunately pretty crude, not the best representation that you'd want as your legacy, he was considered an accomplished draftsman. So maybe he was a little better at drawing than at oil painting. So Charlotte turned down a few governessing jobs to stay at home. But in 1835, she eventually got an offer that she couldn't refuse. It was a teaching position at Rowhead with free education offered for one sister. But going back to Rowhead turned out to be a really serious mistake. Emily could barely make it three months before she had to go home. She couldn't stand being away from home, the moors, her imaginary life. So 15-year-old Anne came up instead. Charlotte was also seriously depressed and was going through kind of a religious crisis. In August 1836, she wrote, quote, The thought came over me, am I to spend all the best part of my life in this wretched bondage, forcibly suppressing my rage at the idleness, the apathy, and the hyperbolical and most asinine stupidity of those fat-headed oafs on a compulsion assuming an air of kindness, patience, and assiduity? And to make matters worse, Branwell, partly the reason why the girls were working in the first place, was failing miserably. Yeah, they had, of course, taken jobs to help their father out, you know, help him support Branwell. And in the fall of 1835, Branwell had gone to London to apply to the Royal Academy of the Arts. You know, this was going to be his big start. He either never made it to London and was robbed on the way. Or he got to London but didn't end up applying to school. Or he applied but was turned down. It's unclear of what exactly happened. But Branwell later tried to still make his living as an artist, specifically as a portrait painter. But he couldn't really compete with the better artists and the new daguerreotypes. And he became addicted to opium eventually, which was on top of a developing drinking problem. And it wasn't long before he had to start making his living as a tutor, which, you know, sounds like a good job for a lot of people, but it was not something that Branwell was suited for at all. When he was eventually fired from his first position, his employers complained that their sons had basically done nothing more than make sketches and think up stories to go with their tutor's drawings, which, I don't know, sounds kind of fun for them, but probably <laughs> their parents weren't too happy they were spending money on that. And there was a rumor, too, right? There was also a rumor that Branwell might have had an illegitimate child who died uh, with a servant. Um, so, you know, just kind of sketchy things starting to pick up around his name and that charm, that intense energy he had was starting to seem more manic, a little more disturbing. After two years at school, Anne got sick and had to go home. Charlotte, who was depressed to the point of illness, also followed in 1838. And over the next few years, the Bronte girls all took teaching jobs, even painfully shy Emily, who distinguished herself at Law Hill by telling her students that she preferred the school dog to them. <laughs> that wouldn't win you <laughs> many most popular teacher points. Not at all. 
Anne's bad experience with the Ingham family influenced her later novel, Agnes Grey, while Charlotte's experience with the Sidgwick family provided inspiration for Jane Eyre. And one of Charlotte's charges even threw a Bible at her head and was very likely the model for John Reed, Jane Eyre's cruel cousin. Yeah, so Charlotte wasn't enjoying governessing, to say the least, but she also wasn't willing to trade it in for a hasty marriage. She turned down two proposals in just six months, the first of which came from Ellen's brother who was a Calvinist preacher who really just needed a wife for his big move to Sussex. You know, it was proper that he was married. Uh, reminds you a little bit of St. John Rivers, I think. Mm-hmm. The second proposal came from a clergyman who was just out of Dublin University. They met in a large group. Charlotte mistook his name as Price instead of Bryce. And really, the next thing you know, she was getting a letter of proposal from him. And that wasn't her style. So it seemed like all the brilliant Bronte were just stuck in a rut, you know, that they were going to have to, the girls were going to have to just tutor forever or be governesses, rather, um, something that they did not care for. Branwell was now working as a railway booking clerk and not taking that work very seriously. He was doodling in the ledgers. And so out of all this kind of... um, I don't know, stall, dead-end sort of life, it seems, a new idea emerged. Miss Branwell proposed offering up some of her savings. She had been squirreling away money over the year from her father's inheritance to her, um, even though she was paying Mr. Bronte rent the whole time. She insisted on it. Um, she, she had managed to save a bit, though, and so she offered a pretty good sum for the three girls to open their own school, You know, which would be a lot different than being a governess, where you're not really a servant, but you're not really a member of the family either. So consequently, you're just completely isolated. If you had your own school, you'd be able to do your own thing. So Charlotte really liked this idea. Emily and Anne were into it too. But Charlotte cooked up an additional perk. She thought that for their school to succeed, the Bronte girls would really need to distinguish themselves in some way, have something that made them different. So she proposed that she and Emily would go off to Brussels for a few months. Mary Taylor was studying there, and so she had a connection. And they'd hone their French and their Italian. Maybe they'd pick up some German. Um, you know, pick up these accomplishments that would make their school one that people in the area would actually want to attend. And Aunt Branwell and Mr. Bronte were game, you know, a little skeptical, but they were they were fine with it. It sounded like an okay idea. So the Brontes started looking for a school, and with their connections in Brussels, you know, they had somebody on the on the other side of the channel who could do the legwork for them, and they ultimately found a school that was high quality but pretty inexpensive, you know, within their budget. And in January 1842, they settled on the Pensionnet Ege. So that's where we're going to leave off for this episode. I can say at this point, you know, the, the Brontes are all grown up. We have exited the growing up Bronte phase, and next Next time, we're going to be talking about their time in Belgium, their education, and then the three breakout novels, of course, that are published in just one year. And then, as we know, all of the family tragedy that starts um, piling up toward the to the end of the Bronte saga. Plus, we're going to talk a little bit about the reputation of the Brontes, which is something that I'm very interested in discussing in more detail. Yeah, it's interesting how that uh, reputation evolves and um, the part that 
some of the Brontes themselves play in that. Exactly. So. Today we just think of them as great novelists, but during the Victorian period, they were also scandalous women. So I think that's a good time for us to move on to listener mail and maybe discuss another recent literature-related podcast we covered. <laughs> So we have two emails here that we want to read about our Elizabeth Barrett Browning slash Robert Browning podcast. We talked about their relationship and how that developed and blossomed over the years. We have one here from Annalisa. She says, I just finished listening to the Elizabeth Barrett Browning Robert Browning podcast, and I love it. But I can't believe you guys didn't talk more about Flush, Elizabeth's dog. If you aren't aware of Virginia Woolf's remarkable little book, Flush, a biography, I highly recommend it as both an imaginative look at the world through the dog's eyes and a unique perspective on Elizabeth and Robert's romance and marriage. Incidentally, I would also love it if you did a podcast on Wolf someday. So she throws a little suggestion in there. <laughs> but yeah, we did. We mentioned that Elizabeth's dog was one of the few possessions that she took with her when yeah. they absconded to Italy. Yes. Uh, but we didn't go, we didn't have time to really explore flesh. Well, now too, I, I feel like I should stave off any other listener emails by noting, getting it out there, that Emily Bronte is really a famous dog lover too. She had a <laughs> mastiff no. and would do these pretty watercolors of it. So that's officially on the record now. <laughs> we also got a letter about uh, Elizabeth Barrett and Robert Browning from Tasha, who is studying English and American literature in England, and she said she was researching Browning's My Last Duchess, which you mentioned in your podcast about Browning and Elizabeth Barrett. Apparently, the Duchess in the poem is based on one of the Medici family. Like Queen Victoria, they just get everywhere. Lucrezia de Cosimo de' Medici was the daughter of Cosimo I de' Medici and the sister of Francesco I de' Medici, who was the unfortunate, quote, father in the Medici murders in a basket baby podcast. Aged 14, she married Alonzo II d'Este, the fifth Duke of Ferrara, who went on to abandon her for two years before she died aged just 17 of suspected poisoning. That was the way a lot of people went back then. Ferrara went on to marry Barbara of Austria, daughter of the Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand I. I thought this was an interesting link between the two subjects that you guys might appreciate. I always like a Medici connection. So thank you, Tasha, for sharing that. And I like My Last Duchess, too. We talked about that mm-hmm. a bit in that episode, didn't we? Um, so thank you, guys. It's always neat to have some more literary insight or dog insight on these <laughs> subjects. And I guess kind of while we're talking about the, um, I don't know, insight and sources, it was cool to research the Brontes because there is so much information on them, which is honestly not something that usually happens <laughs> for most of our podcast subjects. Usually we have to dig and dig and dig, so it is kind of nice once in a while when you have those topics where it's just all kind of laid out for you. Well, it's strange too, though, because there is so much information on them that you get biographies that are countering other mm-hmm. biographies. I mean, I've mentioned the Rebecca Fraser biography, which I really like, but the kind of 
ori- well, it is the original Charlotte Bronte biography is the Mrs. Gaskell one, and that's full of spin in addition to um, actual biographical information, something, again, we'll talk about in the second episode. There's even a whole scholarly journal devoted to the Brontes. <laughs> I was really kind of overwhelmed in this episode in a good way. Yeah, I mean, that's true. That makes it harder in a way because you have to kind of find the commonalities and figure out what's sort of and theory and what's real. Yeah, vastly conflicting opinions about these women in their lives. So, um, I don't know, it's it's cool to talk about and we definitely like to know your opinions. We are at History Podcast at Discovery.com and we're also on Twitter at Missed in History and we are on Facebook. And if you'd like to find out a little bit more about some of the topics we discussed on this podcast, you can find them by visiting our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. 